Our scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. I have to apologize. It was uh, <laughs> it was a transcribed wrong, and so uh, a Corinthians was read. But it was it's 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, which says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Peter says to be sober and vigilant. Our message tonight is entitled Overdosed. Overdosed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word once again. I pray now, Lord, that you make me once again just a nail on the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. This is a heavy topic tonight, Lord. It impacts many of our young people. So we're asking for an extra portion of your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so we're going to get right into this. And normally, if you, if you follow the patterns of my sermons, I start with a Bible story. And I weave in the concepts into that Bible story. Tonight, I'm going to do something a little different. Um, by starting with a testimony. When I was working as a physician in California, I won't even say where in California I was, um, I had a patient come to see me. He was about 31 years of age, if I remember correctly. It was a Thursday, Thursday afternoon, um, and he was having some upper respiratory um, symptoms, a little mild cough, some runny nose. This was pre-COVID, so no one was panicking or running for the corners. Um, and he came in to be seen, and we, um, we talked for a while. I actually knew his parents um, and had kind of worked with them before and um, knew that he'd had some struggles in the past um, with drugs and alcohol. In fact, he was a very talented football player when he was in high school, and um, he had a serious injury in high school. I think it might have been like he, you know, um, tore a, a ligament significantly in one of his knees um, and had to have surgeries and so forth and rehab. And in that process, of course, he was given uh, pain medication. Well, what we now know, the science shows, is if you simply take pain medication, narcotic pain medication, let me be clear, as prescribed, after seven days, it's enough to become dependent on it or addicted to it. And so this young man since high school had been struggling on and off with a pretty significant, serious, life-altering drug addiction problem. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't know how much he drank, but he drank. He, he did um, drugs. Um, he never finished college. Um, he was having a very hard time with life. Uh, fortunately for him, his parents were pretty well off, so they were able to use him, uh, find ways to keep him active and working. And when I saw him, he had been back working for about six months. Um, he had actually completed before that six, uh, six months of a rehab, and it may have run concurrently, uh, as rehab. And so he had been clean and sober, as I remember clearly, six months um, before I saw him. And because he had these symptoms and didn't feel very well, and it was a Thursday, I said, listen, it's Thursday afternoon. You're not going to go back to work today anyway. 
I'll write you off work tomorrow. You'll be fine by Monday morning. Um, you don't need any special medications. You don't need an antibiotic. This is just a virus. Um, so we'll see you on Monday. And as he and I were talking and I went to prepare his note so he could be off of work, um, the Holy Spirit began to tell me that I should pray with this young man. And um, the, the, the urge to pray with him was actually quite strong. However, I, I ignored the urge. I was busy, and I said, oh, I don't want to offend this guy by asking him if he wants to pray. Um, and so he left. I really didn't think much of it. When I came to work Monday morning, one of the nurses came to me and said, did you hear what happened? I said, no, what happened? She mentioned the patient by name and said that something terrible had happened over the weekend. The day he had off, that um, it seems as if he took license to take the free time and somehow stumbled back into someone or went somewhere where his drug of choice was available. What I know is that that Saturday, he went and got those drugs and took um, the same amount he always took. He took that Saturday night and he never woke up Sunday morning. And even as I think about it, I'm very sad because I know the pain his parents went through, that his girlfriend went through his friends from high school that he grew up in that area and the damage that it did to so many. It's always brought back, brought back to the fact that the spirit of God seemed to be pressing me to pray with him. And I failed to do that. I don't know if I'd prayed with him, if it would have made any difference. I'll never know. But I will tell you that what I've learned as a physician and part of my training at Loma Linda when I was um, doing my preventive medicine residency, part of that training was in the area of addiction medicine. And young people, I want to tell you that literally there is singularly no force on earth that is um, a physical or chemical organic source that is more damaging than drugs and alcohol. If Satan has designed a win, he has designed a win in the arena of drugs and alcohol. Countless, countless lives are ruined, families uh, uh, shattered, dreams abated, drugs and alcohol. And yet we live in a society that doesn't just legalize these things, they glamorize it. And if you are going to be a child of the living God, one of the things you're going to have to understand is twofold. One, the dangers that these things cause you. And secondly, how it is that you approach those who have these problems. We'll talk about both of those things tonight um, as we look at America's big problem. So uh, issue brief reports of increase in opioid and other drug-related overdose and other concerns during the COVID pandemic. This was just the American Medical Association just put this out earlier this month. What we found is that during this pandemic, there has been a whole hidden pandemic. 
These are called the diseases of despair, suicides, drug overdoses, or even fatty alcoholic liver disease from um, the amount of excess alcohol that has been consumed. It's interesting. Churches were considered non-essential and closed, but liquor stores were considered essential and stayed open. And so many people actually, and I've heard people at work, I've heard people, patients say this, they literally um, fill the void of not going out to work or church or wherever with bottles and bottles and bottles of alcohol. What is interesting is that a recent report says that although this thing has been horrible and predominantly the opioid epidemic has actually affected suburban and rural white families more than even urban families. However, what's interesting is one report I read is that last year, African-Americans actually did outpace in the realm of overdose deaths. This is a very, very serious issue, one that America has not figured out. And I'll say this, um, it is a true supply and demand issue. Part of the reason America is always going to have a drug problem is because America does not have a drug supply problem. America has a drug demand problem. And we're going to talk about why that is a bit tonight as well. Well, which countries consume the most opioids? It's the United States and Canada. Um, when you look at how many doses are given, this I think is per million people. You can see America leads the pack. Uh, but most of these are, are developed wealthy countries all the way down the list, ending with Spain. This is a major problem. Um, and I, 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 we'll talk more about how this came to be, but this is significant. Opioid overdose death, this is even before the pandemic. You see that it has taken off. What is going on that people are literally doing drugs to the point where it takes their life? And what does this mean prophetically that these types of things are happening? Well, we talked earlier this week about the frontal lobe. And this is the part of the brain that is like the most holy place. This is the part of the brain that Satan is putting under siege. When Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, he is speaking to how sharp your mind must be because sobriety is the opposite of intoxication. And you don't just get intoxicated on drugs without first or on some level becoming intoxicated with the world. And I don't mean you get intoxicated in a world that you want a, a, a fast life and you, you're looking to stay high all the time, but even the pain of this world can intoxicate you to the point where people begin to self-medicate with drugs. Young people, if you've gone through things, if you've had your challenges, if you've had to suffer through pain, it is important that you deal with it because if you leave wounds and holes in yourself, Oftentimes, we will try to fill them with what makes us feel better. And one of the secrets about addiction is anything that changes your mood can addict you. So I was working at the, um, the Veterans Hospital in Loma Linda while I was doing my addiction medicine training. And um, I say this all the story all the time because it was one of the most impactful parts of all of my medical training. It wasn't, I didn't get the learning from attending physicians or from PhDs in some, uh, you know, a, a basic science specialty or something. I learned so much from these veterans, men who had 
uh, served our country, many of them, if not most of them, combat veterans who had actually put their lives on the line and had been greatly traumatized on the battlefields of the world. And I remember as I was, I was part of my training was to sit into one of the group sessions. And as I sat there and, and we went around the room and they talked and they, let me tell you something, they, many of them make better Christians than us because they're willing to open up. The scripture says, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed, right? And many of us will never confess our faults, but in the confidentiality of these group sessions, they would confess their faults. They would talk about their failures as fathers, as husbands. Um, all of the, they, they would just go through, and it was heart-wrenching on the one hand, but you could see, uh, and, pal- and it was palpable, the healing that took place because they opened themselves up. At the end of one of the sessions, and they would do various chants. It works if you work it, so work it till it works. They had these chants that they would do. Once, um, at one of the first sessions I went to, they, they chanted and they, and they said, God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. And when they said that, all my years in church, I'd never heard anyone put it that way. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. My mother's mother's mother was a Seventh-day Adventist. I'd never heard it put that way. God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. And afterwards, I asked one of the guys who was kind of leading out. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, if you try to fill the God-sized hole in your heart with anything but God, you will become addicted to it. He says, each one of us must find God and fill the hole, make up the void, your pain, your disappointments, your tragedies, your trials. Every hole that life creates must be filled by God. If you leave the hole, the God-sized hole in your heart, If you leave it and don't uh, actively seek to place God in that space, Satan will see the void and he will send a torrent of things after you. We talked about sexual intimacy and relationships last night. That's one way he can do it. But drugs and alcohol are definitely another way. And the Bible speaks to how addiction works in multiple places. One of them is here in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. This is the apostle Paul. He's saying, listen, in my flesh dwells no good thing. He says, I can't even figure out how to perform what is right. He says, when I go to do good, the good that I would do, I don't do it. But the evil that I would do, that's what I do. Verse 20, he says, now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. 
But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This is why the Bible says, do not lean on the arm of flesh. You can't trust your own body. Let me make it clear. In fact, I use, I quote Dr. James Kyle all the time when I say this, but your body will conspire to kill you. If you give yourself everything you want, every urge, every, every desire, if you try and fill every one of them, your very body, your own flesh will conspire to kill you. This is why we do not walk after the flesh. Paul says it this way in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? from the body of this death. It's interesting. For the Christian, the flesh is your enemy to an extent. The flesh is where sin sets up shop, where desires and urges come from. And we get it, we can get into all of the hormonal ways. We'll talk about some of the neurochemicals, uh, um, neurotransmitters that, that, that contribute to this in the field of addiction. But Satan understands. We read the quote from Ellen White last night. He has studied the human uh, agency. He understands how we work. He knows how to push the right buttons. He will create the trauma in your life and then give you the sinful uh, uh, treatment for it later on. He will make you have the pain in order that he can supply earthly pleasure. Addiction works. This is from cigarettes. I'm not going to talk much about cigarettes tonight. The numbers of cigarette smokers are down, but vaping is up. And nicotine is still nicotine. It is as addicting, basically, as cocaine is. Has killed more Americans than probably almost anything. And it works when you smoke a cigarette the nicotine goes into your lungs, and it quickly, within seconds, gets to your brain. And when it gets there, and we talked about the reward pathway of dopamine earlier, we'll talk more about that in a second, it causes a massive release of dopamine, so you get this feeling of pleasure, this rush that happens. And I'll talk more about that in a second. I want you young people to understand how addiction actually happens, because there, are, to me, there are two big phases of addiction. There is a moral failure phase when you expose yourself to um, the addicting substance, and then there is a phase where you are, where it's beyond your control. The, the point uh, that you have to make the decision around is that you never allow yourself to become addicted. I don't care how many alcoholics are in your family. If you never drink alcohol, you will never be an alcoholic. Addiction happens by choice. But to break it is difficult to choose, as the Apostle Paul just said. And so a good example is here, right? Dopamine is the brain's reward pathway. God created these reward pathways. And uh, the way I see it from a medical, spiritual standpoint, when sin entered the world, God made sure that the human mind would always prioritize certain things to make sure man survived. He said to, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. So he attached to the union of marriage and intimacy, as we talked about last night, a the pleasure of sexual intimacy as it would drive um, uh, humans to reproduce. If it wasn't pleasurable, there'd be generations would be lost. Same with food. As you can see here, when you eat food, there's a, there's a release of dopamine. Same with drinking water. But you see here, 
When someone takes drugs, this is cocaine, look at how many more yellow bubbles there are here than over here. The amount of pleasure you feel is what makes you say that you are high. There's this massive rush of pleasure in the brain, a euphoria. People say, I'm high as a kite, and so you feel so good. The problem with this is, it doesn't matter how high you get on drugs or alcohol, when you come down, your problems are still going to be there. So addiction, they go through kind of four stages. First is this experimental stage. You discover the agent produces pleasure. And I remember growing up, one of my friends um, in Bloomfield here in Connecticut, um, we were like probably in fifth or sixth grade, and he was telling us on our walk back home from school um, how he had tried cigarettes. And, and, and I mean, at the time, I didn't realize how little we were at the time, but he was talking about how this cigarette gave him such a buzz. Man, it gives you this nice buzz. You get feel good. I mean, we're in like fifth grade. Oh, you get this great buzz. I didn't even fully understand what he was talking about. But years later, of all of us, he was the one who wound up with the drug problem. Because what the way your body works, you get into this experimental stage, you find out that you get this buzz, this pleasure from alcohol, from cigarettes, from cocaine, from heroin, whatever the drug is, amphetamines, crystal meth, it doesn't matter. You get this buzz, you get this high. And it makes you feel better. So the second phase is, you seek the mood swing produced by the agent. So now you feel better. So guess what? The next time you get a bad grade on a test or your, or your parents get into a fight or you are, are, are disrespected by someone at school, one of the things that if you find out this thing causes pleasure and changes your mood, you'll go and do this thing again. And now, anytime you have to deal with emotional things, you can use this substance, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol, you can use this substance to change the way you feel, to dampen the emotional impact until finally you become preoccupied with the mood swing. In the final phase, you become obsessed with the agent. The mood swing may no longer be present. Why? Because you develop tolerance to the thing. And you can't ever get back that first high, which is what most, if you, when you talk to people in rehab, a lot of them will tell you, you keep going because you're trying to get the first high back. So you become obsessed with the agent. And that's why you see people wearing marijuana things on them, on them or they you know, put, wear Bud Light t-shirts. and all. You be, Literally, you become obsessed with it. And if you listen to Americans speak, many Americans, they talk about some of these things with a fondness. Literally, for some people, a cigarette is their best friend. When they get a raise at work, they get a cigarette to celebrate. They get fired from work, they get a cigarette to console them. Or they get a drink to celebrate and a drink to console them. And what happens is you develop arrested development. You, you don't ever move on. And one of the things I've found in working in addiction medicine over the years is that you can see a 60-year-old person, if they became a drug addict at 15, and they're finally coming off of it at 60. Literally, you're not, you're not dealing with a 60-year-old. You're still dealing emotionally with a 15-year-old. It, it arrests your development. This is why you, you're going to see more and more in our society of adults doing very childish, foolish things. Because many have never dealt with life full bore. They've only dealt with life through the veil of uh, intoxication or getting some sort of buzz or high. So let's talk about the first one. 
alcohol. Alcohol is ubiquitous. And I, could, I was going to put all the stats in how much alcohol we sell and drink, but I think most people understand alcohol is everywhere. And like I said, even during the lockdown, alcohol was still readily available. This is what Spirit of Prophecy says in, in Councils for the Church, page 136 to 137. She says, Satan gathered the fallen angels together to devise some way of doing the most possible evil to the human family. One proposition after another was made till finally Satan himself thought of a plan. He would take the fruit of the vine, also wheat and other things given by God as food and would convert them to poisons, which would ruin man's physical, mental and moral powers. And so overcome them and so overcome the senses that Satan would have full control. Isn't it interesting that when you go to a liquor store, they says spirits sold here? Because there is, when you turn your mind over through chemicals to and try and force this euphoria through the release of dopamine and adrenaline, one of the things that actually happens is that uh, the enemy gets sway over you. He actually begins to have more power. And you can see it. Um, my, my Jamaican grandmother would say, a drunk man's tongue is a sober man's mind. You become unfiltered. Ellen White goes on to say, under the influence of liquor, men would be led to commit crimes of all kinds. Through perverted appetite, the world would be made corrupt. By leading men to drink alcohol, Satan would cause them to descend lower and lower in the scale. And if you've been around, you know that this, this is true. Alcohol can rip a person straight out of normalcy, ruin families, not just alcohol, all of the drugs that we're going to talk about. Here's what the Bible says. Proverbs 23, 31 says, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it gives his color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. The Bible is describing fermentation here. Don't miss this. Some folks say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine, and Paul said, a little wine for the stomach's sake. But here the Bible is describing that there's a process that happens. That's why Solomon says, don't look at it after it goes past this point, when it becomes red, when it gives us color in the cup, when it moves itself aright, when it has fermented. He says, don't look at it. Why? Now it has alcohol in the wine, and it will bite you like a serpent. It will sting like an adder. He goes on, Solomon says, thine eyes shall behold strange women and thy heart and thine heart shall utter perverse things your judgment of who you lay with who you associate with things you would normally never say and do you would do under the influence of alcohol solomon is giving a warning here yep someone who that's one of the reasons why girls need to understand they don't pro, young women do not process alcohol they do not have as much alcohol dehydrogenase in their system to process alcohol like men do and so it with this, if the, with the same amount of alcohol consumption a woman most women will get intoxicated before the man will this is why a lot of men want to buy you drinks because they think they can hold their liquor better than you can, move you to a place where you are under the influence and have poor judgment so that you are less likely to be able to make smart choices. Right? 
So even if the person looks like, you know, I always would joke about certain celebrities, but none of the ones I know now you would know. But if they're not very attractive, they'll look very attractive after a few drinks. At least that's what the guy is hoping. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast, meaning that you, you, you vomit, you, you stagger, you can't walk straight. Verse 35, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When, I, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. That's addiction. You wake up beaten, bloodied, battered. You don't remember where you've been, and yet you get up and you want another drink. I was preaching in um, Australia, staying with um, a family, and they were um, Pastor Joshua Gonzalez, actually, great friend of mine down in Sydney. And we were staying with him. He was telling me about the, the way that the drinking culture in, in, in Sydney. And he was explaining that uh, the young people there, they drink. Until, if, if you can remember the night before, you didn't have a good time drinking. You haven't, had a, you haven't really had a good time drinking unless you can't remember what happened. That is crazy. And that's not just Australia. That's a pattern seen around the world now. Where it gets deep is that a study finds alcohol dampens brain waves associated with decision making, but not motor control. These are the theta waves. We talked about brain waves earlier this week. We talked about Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Alcohol changes your ability to reason by its impact on GABA and glutamate, two, two neurochemicals in the brain, um, one an inhibitory one, one an excitatory one. Alcohol changes your ability to make wise decisions. This is why the scripture says the drunk will not inherit the kingdom of God because you can't choose wisely. Does more than that. Damages all over the body. The, 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 one of the big lies is that they're saying that alcohol is good for you, that you should drink a glass of wine with your dinner. What we now know is that there is no safe amount of alcohol to drink. Period. That is science. We, I, I just, we just interviewed a, a nephrologist on one of the shows I do, and um, he said the same thing. He said every time you drink alcohol, you lose nephrons in your kidney that you will not get back. So if, you have, if you're drinking alcohol and you're diabetic and you have high blood pressure, all of a sudden you're killing the, neuron, the, the, the nephrons in your kidneys so much faster. You're also killing, of course, the neurons, the brain cells at the same time. Just one drink of alcohol a day increases a woman's risk for breast cancer. It is a carcinogen. It's literally poison. Yet it is advertised and flaunted and bragged about. People talk about getting that drank on and, and sipping Moet and Alizé and all this kind of stuff. They glamorize it. But isn't that what Satan does, young people? Doesn't he paint you a picture like things are going to be so wonderful if you follow him? Well, like Adam and Eve, you follow him, you will lose out on what God has for you. And I wish I didn't have to preach sermons like this, but in my travels, I've found that there are many in the church who are just as affected by this as people outside the church. But it's not just, marijuana, not just alcohol, also marijuana. The Wall Street Journal put out this article that says marijuana is more dangerous than you think. This is not a Christian Seventh-day Adventist publication by any stretch of the imagination. Yet, in all of the talk of medicinal marijuana and all the ways it helps, they're not telling you the truth. It's being hidden that, in fact, more people become dependent to marijuana than alcohol. Yes, they say it's not addictive. That's not true at all. 
Marijuana is very addicting. And we'll show you, I'll show you some stats on that in a second. And just today, March 24th, 2021, a deal was reached to fast-track legalizing marijuana in New York. It will be worth billions, billions of dollars. And already, the tentacles are out as people are moving. As people smoke less cigarettes in America, it's almost like it's being replaced with marijuana. And people are saying, well, we, you know, the, the, criminal, the criminal justice system did not handle marijuana well. But this idea that marijuana is completely safe and harmless is a lie. And if there's anything affecting, especially um, many of our young men, but even a lot of the young women in, in church now, it's this drug. Where we think it's hip, it's cool. I had a patient the other day come into one of our clinics, and literally he walked in the door, and we were sitting behind the desk, and you could smell the marijuana from that far away. Marijuana use and... Uh, uh, um, and addiction are most pronounced in America's young people. Of those going to rehabilitation for weed addiction, 45% are under 21 years of age. When those 24 and younger are included, the percentage rises to 55. So there's a problem. People are actually going into rehab for marijuana, even though people say it's not addicting. And I, I put this, this picture here because literally people sing songs to marijuana. These are the best weed songs, the 420, April 20, hip-hop mix. I grew up, they were, it, was, it was the reggae music that, that sang about marijuana and promoted it. Those Rast, the Rastafarians, at least, uh, did. But it, it's all over the place now. Marijuana has been pushed. Chronic marijuana use and higher dosages are found to correlate to greater incidence of psychosis and schizophrenia. No one is telling you this. And you see the picture there? Marijuana-induced psychosis is real. I've seen this in patients myself. No one's telling you that if you smoke marijuana, you increase your risk of psychosis and schizophrenia later on. Very difficult things to deal with. The point is particularly significant due to the increases in drug potency over the last two decades. While the average potency has risen from 3% THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, the intoxicating ingredient in marijuana, a couple of decades ago to 9% now, now they have weed samples as high as 25%. Do you think there will be motivation to drastically increase the amount of THC when it's, there's now competition between companies trying to sell it? We are, we are, we're on a precipice. And America does not do well with dealing with mental health crisis and illness. Our healthcare system doesn't do well with it. So imagine in 10 years, if, if only a small percentage of the millions of people who are now going to try and use marijuana could wind up with mental health problems, who's going to take care of them? We don't have a system to take care of them. I remember um, um, we were having this discussion, and I think I read it in a case study of a young uh, kid who came from like one, a, a more conservative background and he, from like the Midwest, and he went out to Colorado when they legalized marijuana. He went to the store to buy an edible, and the, and the person selling it to him told him, do not eat the whole brownie, cut it into fourths, wait at least 12 hours between each sec section, um, and, and eat it that way to get you high. And the kid, you know, he got, a, he got in a hotel room. He was so happy he could legally do marijuana. Do you think he ate one-fourth of that brownie? He did not. He ate the entire brownie in one sitting. He went into an immediate psychotic episode and jumped from the hotel window to his death. Marijuana changes 
spatial and time perceptions. It decreases memory, suppresses the immune system. It, it, it disinhibits. People don't make wise decisions. And the most dangerous thing is that most people who smoke marijuana recreationally are probably also going to drink alcohol. So it's not like there's a one or the other. People say, well, it's safer than alcohol. But who's studying what its impact is when you mix it with alcohol? Nobody is. They're going to roll this thing out, legalize it, and by the time America wakes up to what it causes, it will be too late. Marijuana works backwards. I don't have time to get into this, except to say that every other drug releases dopamine from the pre um, the, 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 um, the presynaptic side of the, of the neuron and the receptors on the other side, on the postsynaptic side, receive it. Marijuana doesn't do that. It works on the postsynaptic side, raises the amount of dopamine receptors, so that's how it becomes a gateway drug. If you do marijuana and then do cocaine, you have more receptors to receive all of that dopamine I showed you earlier, so the cocaine is even more addicting. They say it's not a gateway drug, but neurochemically, it, it, it seems to exactly work the way a, a gateway drug would work. The other one I want to just touch on quickly is the opioid epidemic. 130 plus people uh, died every day from opioid related drug overdoses in this year. I think this is from 2017 or 2018. I won't get into the numbers except to tell you this. This whole thing started when um, the Joint Commission, the, 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 the accrediting uh, body that goes into American hospitals and tells you whether or not you could qualify, you're accredited so that you can get money from the government through Medicaid and Medicare, they said that pain was the fifth um, vital sign. And all of a sudden, if you weren't meeting patients' pain requirements, you could be dinged. The provider could be dinged. The physician could be dinged. The hospital could be dinged. And so people started writing a whole lot more narcotic pain medicines. What we didn't know at the time was that somehow the pharmaceutical industry was in on this decision and has made billions of dollars as America has watched her children overdose. And why does America's children overdose? Because America's children are trying to, to manage their pain with pleasure. It's self-medication. The stresses of life, and I, I, I don't have time to go through that part of it, but I want to submit to you that what the devil wants you to do is look to your pain and decide you're going to feel better by any means necessary. That's why earlier this week in one of the messages I said, if, you, if you're really ever going to find God, you've got to learn to find him in your pain, in your trials, in your difficulties. He's there in the fiery furnace waiting for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The last verse I want to read is this one. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be what? And be sober. Do you see that? It's a command to be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see that? Remember I said salvation? is always tied to a helmet. Why? Because God wants you to protect your frontal lobe, your mind. It is with our minds that we love God. And that's what God wants from us, to be, to be our choice 
to be, uh, uh, to be our choice to choose him, to love him, to worship him. If you're going to be overdosed, be overdosed with the Holy Ghost. Be overdosed by bathing in the love of the living God. Find him. Last story I want to tell is one I tell all the time. It goes back to that veterans hospital as well. I was working there um, seeing patients as a resident. When a middle-aged man came in and sat down in a chair. He was my next patient. Came into the exam room and said, I want to die. I said, what do you mean you want to die? We just started trying to make a joke. But he was, his affect was completely flat, meaning no emotions. He said, I want to die. I said, why do you want to die? He said, two years ago, my mother died. A year ago, my father died. And he said, two weeks ago, my dog died. He said, I just want to die. I said, sir, if you want to die, why are you in the hospital? He said, because I felt like I had more of a chance of dying here than anywhere else. I said, that's not a good thing to say, sir. But he began to tell me the story of how he was on Interstate 10 going out from um, the Inland Empire out towards Palm Springs. And he was so high on, on alcohol and crystal methamphetamines that he began to sway on the road. And when the Ca California Highway Patrolman saw him, he pulled him over and tested him and he was high. He searched the car and found in the trunk of the man's car all of the things you need to set up a crystal meth lab. The gentleman told me that he was going out to, to set up shop in a motel where he would make crystal meth. He'd sell some of it so he could live and use the other half of it to feed his addiction. I said, sir, that, 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 that seems like a lot. He says, you don't understand where I've been. And he began to tell me about a very difficult and troubled childhood. His time at, in war, in combat, in war. And how all of that had affected him. He said, Doc, I just want to die. I said, sir, you're not, you're not here by accident today. And I didn't have a glow track or something from Amazing Facts. I reached up and grabbed the government-issued um, uh, uh, note paper for, um, for, for um, our progress notes. And I began to write out for this man the plan of salvation. I started in heaven and the, the war between Christ and Satan and how Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I went to the Garden of Eden. Our promise was made in Genesis 3 and verse 16 that one day Christ would make it right. And I, I went all the way to, to, to uh, Bethlehem and the birth of Christ. And, and the, I, I went into the story of, uh, of the death of Christ how he agonized and suffered after living in a sinless life. And I, I began to write out for him how Christ went to the cross and he died. And when I got there, I said, he said, it is finished. And I said, and he said, um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I said, sir, Jesus died for you. He said, really? I said, in fact, if you were the only one who needed saving, he still would have come and died for you. He said, seriously? I missed a step. Well, before I even went there, I asked him. I said, sir, do you know who Jesus is? I had to pray about it. I said, sir, do you know who Jesus is? He said, yes, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. I said, if you know that, why do you want to die? And his answer was, 
because I've sinned too much. He then began to tell me all of the sin, the drugs, the sex, the violence, all the things that he had done. And then when he was done, he said, you see, Christ would never accept me. And that's why I gave him the plan of, of, of salvation. And at the end, I said to him, don't you understand? You have not outsinned God's ability to save you. The blood of Jesus Christ still washes. It still cleanses. The man says, he started to cry. Tears began to run down his face. He said, you mean Jesus would accept me? I said, sir, I've got proof, proof that he'll accept you. I said, sir, he saved a wretch like me. He and I fell on the floor of the Veterans Hospital in Loma Linda, California, with tears streaming down his face. That man gave his life to Jesus Christ on the spot. I saw him a week later as I was doing rounds on, the, on that floor, and he came running down the hallway, brother doctor, brother doctor. And he threw his arms around me. And he said, I'm feeling so much better. I said, how are you doing? He said, you don't understand. Ever since you prayed for me last week, he said, I don't even have the desire for drugs and alcohol. He said, doc, they're gone. I said, how's everything else going? He said, listen, doc. He said, the only problem I have is that they keep kicking me out of the Alcoholics Anonymous and the Narcotics Anonymous meetings. I said, why are they kicking you out? He said, because they tell me I'm calling on the name of Jesus too much in the meetings. I saw that man years later when I was moonlighting. After I'd finished residency, moonlighting in the emergency room in that same hospital. And he was still a faithful Christian. I tell you all of that today, young people. But you don't have to be overdosed with this world or the drugs of this world. You can be overdosed with the love of Jesus Christ. That he will forgive and restore even the land that the locusts have taken. He'll return it to you. And I challenge each one of you tonight to value your future, yourselves, your families, to understand the importance of your relationship with Jesus Christ, that you avoid drugs and alcohol. And if you come across someone in your life, in your inner circle, who has a real problem with this, take that thing to prayer and explain to them the need to go into rehab. They may not listen to you, but you don't stop supporting and you don't stop praying. Because once you're addicted, it's beyond you. The moral decision is over and the addiction takes over. And that's where the power of God is needed to break it. I submit to you young people tonight, God is still in the saving business. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and talk about drugs, alcohol, and addiction. Lord, I know that there's young people, there are young people who are listening tonight who are suffering from some form of addiction. Whether they're doing drugs or someone they love is doing drugs. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend. Father God, I pray that Holy Spirit would find them. Those with an addiction problem, Lord, help them to break it. Help them to turn their eyes on Christ. Set them free, Father. And if there's someone in their circle of love that is struggling with this, 
help those young people to claim the Bible promises that say that nothing is impossible for God and help them to pray so that you can intercede and work things out for that person they love. But be with all of us, Lord. Let us not get drunk with this world. But let us, Lord, all be sober and vigilant. For Lord, we want to be ready when you come. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.